Hello, friends, and welcome to Mr. Rewalk, your Mr. Robot recap show brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Aaron. What's new with you? Well, um, this weekend, I was joking that I'm dressed like a suburban mom today. <laughs> but yesterday I did a suburban mom thing and went to a small-town peach festival. What kind of stuff goes on at the peach festival? Is it just, like, you buy peaches? Uh, that's a big part of it. That's really the reason that I go. But also you... Um, Basically, you know, you walk around the midway, you eat a peach sundae. I didn't realize that the Prime Minister would also be there, <laughs> uh, because it was the 50th anniversary of the Winona Peach Festival. Oh, wow, so it was quite an occasion. Well, the motorcade made it look that way. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, so, yeah, now I have to um, make 40 uh, jars of peaches this week. You sound kind of busy. Are there any other kind of things like that? Yeah, a lot of small Ontario towns have, like, there's a garlic festival and a potato festival and a... <laughs> Cheese festival. Wow. I have been to the uh, Powassan Maple Syrup Festival, which was really great. Oh. It's, a, it's a quintessentially Canadian experience. Well, I'll have to go next year. <laughs> uh, how about you? You listen to anything good? Oh, yeah, actually. This album uh, just came out recently at the time of this recording. It's by um, The War on Drugs, and it's called A Deeper Understanding. I was staring into the light When I saw you in the distance I knew that you'd be mine In my mood confused in my notes about whether we're on episode 7 or episode 8, maybe? Um, I'm not really sure myself. I think it's called White Rose. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know which one this is. So this keeps happening to me where I keep getting tripped up because the, the episodes actually start at zero and then work forward. Yeah, because the episode titles are, I guess, like zero indexed. But I started with ones in my notes, so the two of us keep getting really confused about that. It's like an off-by-one error. So, <laughs> so we will... We'll try to keep on track. The title, though, <laughs> is White Rose. It took me a second to figure out what was happening in this next scene, because it looks like um, Darlene's maybe kind of regular hookup is this guy, Alexander Jones. Yeah, I didn't even catch his name when I was watching it. I had to go back and check it, because I wasn't sure if he would <laughs> become important to us later or not, because he doesn't seem very important. I guess he's not important, but the stuff that happens in this scene is very important. Yes, and so the real takeaway from this is he leaves his apartment before Darlene does, and she cracks into his safe, and she, so she steals his gun and puts it in her purse. Right, so this is kind of uh, Chekhov's gun, as it were, because now he needs to wonder what it is that Darlene needs this gun for, because uh, this plan has kind of been set in motion, and things are really coming to a head, like you said. Uh, one thing that I found interesting about this guy, um, what did you say his name was? Alexander Jones. Alexander Jones. He has this quote about how... Um, people in the world are just stupid, and he is paid to be smarter than them. And this reminded me of the thing called um, the Dunning-Kruger effect, where people who are, who, are, who are ignorant in a way are kind of so ignorant of their own deficiencies that they think that they're more skilled than they are. And the mirror to that, the other side of that coin, is that if you're skilled in one particular area, you're so 
acutely aware of your deficiencies that you actually judge yourself more harshly. So I thought it was really interesting that Alexander was like a, a Dunning-Kruger like this because he was saying to Darlene that he's paid to be smart, but Darlene is completely taking advantage of him at this exact moment. Is that where imposter syndrome comes from? That idea? <laughs> yeah, I bet the two are very related. So after that, Darlene uh, grabs the gun and she heads to a ballet class, as one does. I wonder if she brought the gun to the ballet. She brought the gun to the ballet. <laughs> well, she must have. She must have, because she doesn't go home. <laughs> yeah. Um, this isn't the scene in which she fires it, though. Um, Thankfully. But Angela's also there. Right. So it seems like they are uh, going to these ballet training recital things, whatever you call those. And it kind of hints that um, Angela and Darlene maybe have a closer relationship than we've seen with them so far. This scene, we talked about the Bechdel test in some other episodes of this podcast. This scene does not pass that. They mostly talk about how worried they are about Elliot and why they're always so stressed out worrying about him. Yeah. Well, he has been a, a bit of a persistent pain in their necks, I guess. <laughs> at the ballet class, one thing that uh, I at least am super disappointed to learn is that Angela still talks to Ollie. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like there might be a good reason for that in this case, though, because... Um, what we find is that Ollie has been contacted by the Dark Army, and they have some kind of job for him, but I don't think it's revealed just yet what that job is. It's not revealed, but we get some hints at it. So when Darlene uh, leaves the ballet class, she thinks she's being followed on the subway, and she knows for sure she is when these two men come up to her, and what they say is, tell him to follow the proper commands or the sequence won't initiate. That's so, it, it sounds like that quote from the withdrawal episode where it's like, find the monster and turn the key or whatever, because it's just <laughs> yeah. so like weird and abstract. Well, and at this point, I don't know how much she knows about Cisco and like him giving Ollie that job and all of that stuff. But we do, we take from this that they're a dark army and that things are heating up in that way. There's like so much in this episode. This is a really exciting episode. Right. So Darlene knows that for sure. And then we learn that she's headed to F Society headquarters. Yeah, in the next scene, everybody is back at F Society. And it seems like they're kind of getting ready to um, push this plan a little farther ahead. The Raspberry Pi that they've been monitoring, the one that they left at Steel Mountain, it's still operational, so they still think that they can continue with this plan as long as Dark Army is cooperating with them. Yeah, so this part is exciting because I think we thought this plot was off, and we had some intimation that it was back on. It looks like everything is a go, and they're going to be able to pull this off. Um, it also, we learned that it looks like the Dark Army meeting is actually going to be with Elliot and not Darlene. Yeah, because we had thought so far that it would have been Darlene. And um, we don't really know why they want to speak with Elliot specifically yet, but we do find out that that's the case. So this meeting is going to be with Darlene, sorry, with Elliot instead of Darlene. Uh, Darlene, she's a little worried for Elliot in this case, I think. So she offers him um, that gun that she had stolen from Alexander earlier. The funny thing about, so he won't take the gun. So Darlene kind of stashes it in the popcorn maker, which is full of freshly popped popcorn. Maybe it's like really, really old popcorn. Maybe. Or I thought maybe it's like, oh, maybe this is kind of like a clubhouse. Like maybe they <laughs> hang out there and stuff. That could be it. But yeah, so she hides the gun in the popcorn. Can you imagine if you were like actually trying to get out a scoop of popcorn though and there's like a handgun in it? <laughs> <laughs> they must not actually be using it. And you'd be like, this isn't real butter. <laughs> But if Elliot won't take the gun, Darlene at least wants to uh, trade phone numbers with Elliot. And that's something that for them really breaks every protocol that they have because they try and keep their operations completely offline. They always try and meet up in person to make sure that there's no kind of um, electronic trail connecting them. So it's actually a really, really big step for them to be sharing their phone numbers like that. 
He does accept that, which kind of pisses Mr. Robot off, though. Right, it breaks protocol and it introduces some risks. So he's really not happy with that. And he, um, he kind of tries to get Elliot to second-guess Darlene. And he says that maybe you don't really want to be that close to her. Now we see Tyrell, and he's on his way to his office at um, E Corp. I think that the camera work in this scene was really, really interesting because it opens with a kind of extreme close-up of Tyrell's face with a handheld camera as he's walking through these corridors. And um, if you're asking me, I kind of think that that's to be interpreted as Tyrell's uh, the tunnel vision that he's developed with this kind of excessive ambition, uh, especially because he's so lost in his thoughts that he walks into another person and um, they spill all of his coffee on Tyrell. But Tyrell blames the other guy, even though it was completely obvious that he was just not paying attention. So I, I think that this is kind of trying to show that Tyrell is sometimes a little too focused, and he also is not really willing to accept his own faults. He, he's on his way to a meeting with Gideon, I think. Is that right? I think he's not expecting to see Gideon. Gideon has oh, come yeah. to see him, because he's, he's mad at his assistant. And she says, you know, Gideon is very persistent, and he wouldn't leave. So now he's got to deal with him. So Gideon's there. He's trying to he's trying to preempt a big fallout between Allsafe and E Corp. It's about um, Angela's kind of plan to break the chain of custody, whatever we were talking about, right? I don't yeah. really understand very much of that, to be honest. But I guess so, it works out. <laughs> well, because Angela is basically she's made a deal with Colby, so it's going to impl implicate some other people. And it's also she's agreed to say that she didn't handle the security pr appropriately, so she's caused. Um, the potential of her to be um, shared. Well, the, the evidence would be invisible, meaning that Terry Colby couldn't be punished for it, is, I guess, what they're trying to say. Yeah, exactly. So Gideon is there. He tells Tyrell about the Colby dat file, and he explains that all safe's doing everything they can to jack up their security. One thing that's really important is that they, um, they set up a honeypot. And I mentioned that kind of in passing in an earlier episode, but the idea is that a honeypot is a server that you leave out there that's kind of... Um, intentionally made vulnerable in some way, but also kept under close scrutiny. So if anybody is ever able to attack that server, you're able to see right away and catch them in the axe. So now we know that Gideon's spying on Elliot, really. Gideon is very clever. I feel like he's kind of seen through everybody's bullshit this entire series. He absolutely is, because Elliot, well, so we know as the viewer, Elliot's totally unaware. And I admit this caused some high anxiety for me, because we know that F Society is about to try to pull off their exploit, but they have no idea that the honeypot's been set up. They have no idea that anybody's onto them. Right, because if they were to accidentally hack that honeypot, this entire plan could just come crashing down on them. Tyrell sees an opportunity for himself here because that's his way. <laughs> yeah, well, as soon as Gideon's out of his hair, he puts, um, puts his headphones in, starts listening to some classical music. And he uses kind of a, a clever trick to find the files that he can't access. But basically, instead of using um, the standard output of uh, the finds command, he looks at the error output. So he kind of only filters out the files that he can access, and that leaves the ones that he can't access, which includes this uh, dat file. So Tyrell is really onto what he knows is a piece of valuable information, but he is interrupted because the police are in his office. This might be related to that uh, murder that happened at the party a few days ago. Maybe just a little bit, but we're not going to find out because Tyrell um, kind of unbelievably gives them the brush off. Right, because the uh, work must go on, right? I think that's what he says. I think so, too. We're going to spend a little bit of time with uh, Tyrell Bellick. 
because a lot of this episode focuses on Elliot, and if we were kind of switching from scene to scene, it would be a little disjointed. So we kind of just want to go through Tyrell's storyline, and then after that, we'll get to Elliot's storyline. So can you um, set the scene for the Tyrell household? Absolutely. You know, the Wellex household feels like the least homey place on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. So we see it's Tyrell and Joanna, and um, they're having a conversation in the kitchen. Right. I think that while they're talking, uh, Joanna's trying to scrub something out of her dress in the sink or something like that. Yeah, and she seems pretty mad about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you kind of get the impression that she is very much um, in control in this discourse. Like, she's kind of guiding where the conversation's going. But... She's not really in control of the situation overall because we find out that she um, is unaware of the murder of Sharon Knowles, which happened at that party the other day. Uh, she still is trying to go through with the plan of blackmailing Sharon because from her perspective, she just thinks that Tyrell has uh, like slept with her and taken photos or something like that. That is something that could be damaging, but not necessarily so much as outright murdering her. Now, Tyrell does nothing to correct her impression of the situation in this scene. That's worth noting. I didn't consider that at all. He lets her believe it. And so that's how it's left. Wow. Um, I think there's some symbolism here because, first off, like, we, we see that Joanna is in control, very much so. And I think that from her cleaning the dress in the sink, I think that that's kind of supposed to be a reference to the fact that she always has to come in and clean up Tyrell's messes. He's unraveling increasingly. Yeah. And so she has found herself in a position where if this plan's going to happen, she has to be the one who's steering it. So she's increasingly in control and increasingly calling the shots. And maybe, I don't know why he doesn't tell her. Maybe he has some ulterior motive, or maybe he's not sure how she'll react. Because I think that um, like the way he had reacted right after he had attacked Sharon, it, it was obvious that he kind of um, knew right away that he'd made a mistake. So maybe he knows that if he told Joanna, she would have the same impression. And so we'll have to let that play out a little bit later in the episode. Right, because there's um, a small interruption with a scene that I found really, really interesting. Because I think that it's the first time where we see um, Tyrell meet Mr. Robot. They're having a meeting uh, in a car. Yeah, in presumably Tyrell's fancy, fancy car. <laughs> it's probably a hybrid Escalade or something. Um, so we haven't seen them together before, but they seem very familiar. They've got some rapport, yeah. Tyrell says to Mr. Robot that he wants to be allies and that also he knows a secret. The scene is so mysterious because you don't really know what they want to be allies about, what the secret is, but I think that Mr. Robot says that secret's not really going to be valuable to Tyrell at all. Well, he says it won't help anyone, and so we're left to wonder about what that secret might be, and hopefully that'll become clear to us as we move through the story. Yeah, this segment definitely introduces a lot more questions and answers. So after this meeting in the car, um, Tyrell heads straight home and he uses up all his cheat day uh, chugging a bottle of vodka <laughs> in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, he really just pours that down. It seems like he's not really having the greatest day, but it's interesting to contrast his behavior to Joanna, who was just completely chill, not even bothered in the slightest by the fact that her husband has just come home and drank like a 40 of vodka in front of her face. She's just sitting there kind of nibbling something off a little fork like she so often does. She's also the only person who ever really sees him falling apart. And he's doing a lot of that lately. <laughs> a lot of that. And so he's, he's just barfing out a bunch of stuff, which probably makes no sense to her at all. It doesn't really make sense to the viewer either, because I think that he starts to talk about a lot of like weird spiritual things he might have accepted, uh, sorry, expected from like Vera earlier in the season. But Tyrell, like, he's kind of been like a techie who tried to establish as a person who's very smart and capable. So it kind of makes you wonder where this is coming from. 
the the most rational and key things I took from it um, is that he says that they've been myopic the whole time. They've been focusing on the wrong players. And also, um, like the timeline, I think, is not very firmly established here. So it could not be the case. But it seems like he's had this change of heart as a result of the meeting with Mr. Robot earlier. That's how it seems. Or it could be because as a result of the meeting with Gideon earlier. Oh, of course. Because they all occur in sequence. So he now says to Joanna that a tech he had previously ignored is the key to something beautiful, which makes us think he knows more about the F Society plot than we were aware. But they're interrupted by the, the two detectives who've been chasing Tyrell down for a while. He's continuously blown them off, so now they're actually just showing up at his house. And they reveal um, to Joanna the fact that Sharon's dead. She didn't know about that yet. And it's obvious um, that Tyrell's a person of interest, although he has not really been charged with anything yet. Joanna seems legitimately and honestly surprised at the news. Right, because um, as we saw earlier, she kind of thinks that Tyrell is planning to blackmail her. And I know at this point, Joanna knows that if their plot is going anywhere, she has to take charge of it. So she takes a pretty dramatic step to get them out of that conversation with the detectives. I think that this is related to the, the scene earlier, once again, where she's kind of cleaning up after Tyrell's mess. Because these police, this could be a very big problem with their plan. Joanna does clean up Tyrell's mess in a way that's kind of shocking and disgusting and awful. Because basically, I don't know how to say it delicately, she takes a fork to herself so she can get them to the hospital and out of that conversation. Yeah, she uses that fork that she'd be eating with to induce labor because that's one way to get the police out of your hair, I guess. And it seems to work. Yeah, it does. So we explained earlier, we're trying to distill this episode a little bit, and so now the rest of our episode is going to be spent talking about Elliot's storyline because there is so much that happens in this episode and there are so many critical moments that no we kidding. just want to tell it all in one piece. The kind of culmination of this episode, I guess, begins when Ollie comes up to Elliot and he kind of reveals that job that the Dark Army had for him earlier in the episode. He has some hard drives that Elliot has to go deliver to some repair place, I think. Is that what it is? Yeah, he tells him that he needs him to take two drives to a disc recovery place and that has to be at 2 o'clock. And so Elliot says, not to Ollie, but just internally, he says, this is the meat. Because why else would Elliot need to do that, right? It's not really his responsibility. No, well, in fact, he tries to slough off the task like he says isn't this a job for somebody else and but then ollie who is like all sweaty and scared <laughs> uh tells him that he has to do it and to like be a bro and just get it done which he does but not before he has a conversation with angela so elliot and angela are talking in the street i like that it seems like i don't know if it's just in this universe or in new york the best way to have a private conversation is in the most public place you can find <laughs> yeah that is kind of funny isn't it so she explains to him what happened, so that they've infected the AllSafe network um, and all of the stuff between Ollie and Cisco, who sold him the CD. But she also kind of turns on him. So she also says that Elliot has been lying to her. He's never there for her. And this, I think it makes, I think it actually touches Elliot, where it's a sad moment where he realizes there's a divide between them forever. But now she knows it too. What do you mean by that exactly? I think it's that in their childhood, they were so very close. Like, they talk about running away together, and uh -uh. they spend all their time together, and they share all their thoughts, and then lately, they don't see each other. They're obviously keeping secrets from each other. Um, so it's the character of their relationship has fundamentally changed. Uh -huh. So they're sort of siloed off now. I guess I see what you mean. 
So next step, Elliot uh, delivers those drives to the disk recovery place that we saw earlier. And I love the way this is set up because this looks like some hole in the wall place that should have been closed 10 years ago, but it's open. Um, Emily walks in and I love this scene because of the sheer absurdity of it. So there's a guy who's wearing basically a hazmat suit, mm -hmm. but they're also eating a sandwich <laughs> at the same time. Um, and that guy escorts him into what Elliot immediately recognizes as a Faraday cage. Yeah, a, a Faraday cage is actually a super interesting concept. And the idea is basically that you can um, wrap a conductive material around something and put a field through it. Like, uh, in this case, it's the entire room is a Faraday cage. And what it does is it disrupts wireless signals that are trying to enter or exit that room. So within a Faraday cage, neither of them have any cell service. It means that you can't really um, like talk to somebody who's outside of the room like, with an earpiece like you're done at Steel Mountain. But it's also worth mentioning that it doesn't really prevent them from recording the conversation, which could be done offline. An interesting kind of parallel uh, in real life with Faraday cages, when um, Edward Snowden, who was releasing all of the NSA documents in, I think, 2013, he met up with um, Glenn Greenwald, uh, the journalist, and Laura Poitras, the documentarian. And when they were meeting, they put all of their phones inside um, a metal cocktail shaker, because that behaves as a Faraday cage and made sure that nobody was hacking their phones while they were talking. No way. It's pretty cool, isn't it? So I just learned a new use for my cocktail shaker today, <laughs> which is always my goal. So that initial part, though, seems to be a bit of misdirection, because at first, I at least assumed that the hazmat suit guy is White Rose. I think it's funny that you called him hazmat suit guy, because all my notes have him as sandwich guy. But you're right that sandwich guy just doesn't acknowledge Elliot at all. He walks out, closes the door behind him, and then the other door on the other side of the Faraday cage opens. And we see White Rose, who we've been led to believe, because they've been using male pronouns all along, that White Rose is a man. I think that in tech, there just is the assumption that if you're meeting someone new, they're a man. It's kind of unfortunate. But we find out that, yeah, White Rose is a woman. Tech and the rest of the world, you know. <laughs> um, and that woman is played by B.D. Wong. And I just have a really special <laughs> affection for well, B.D. Wong. You've probably been seeing a lot of B.D. Wong lately with your Law & Order podcast, right? Yeah, so if you listen uh, to my other podcast, The 27th Precinct, um, B.D. Wong in that series uh, plays a therapist. Wow, I can't really imagine. That's such such a different character. That's like um, when Brian Cranston played uh, Hal in, in um, Malcolm in the Middle and then went and played uh, Walter White in Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, like, of course. How can you imagine one actor playing those two completely separate characters? I like to see the range of what people can do. And so I think this is showing some real range on B.D. Wong's part. Yeah, no kidding. They seem to be a very versatile actor. Uh, I love, if any of you watch BoJack Horseman, the new season is actually coming out right around the time that we're releasing these episodes. But there's a scene where there's an entertainment reporter who, like me, is trying to be young and hip. <laughs> so he says, you know, as, as they say, it's NBD, which, as we all know, means no BD, as in the Asian-American actor B.D. Wong. <laughs> That's hilarious. But the thing I take away from that is that we're going to need to make a BoJack rewatch podcast after this. Oh, my God, we are. But this scene, in fact, is very BD, so don't, don't let me take away from that at all. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So a little bit about White Rose. I didn't really notice this until I had started to do research about the show for this podcast, but White Rose is an anagram for otherwise, which I think is kind of interesting. It really goes to show you how kind of mysterious this character is. Um, another thing is that they have a kind of weird obsession with time. They have an obsession with time where 
White Rose gives three minutes for this meeting, and they're wearing a beeping watch that beeps every 60 seconds. And that really propels the anxiety forward in the scene because Elliot has a hard time getting any footing in this conversation with White Rose at all. Yeah, he basically uses all of his time just asking really stupid cryptic questions. <laughs> so he wastes some of it. There's also a point where White Rose says that Elliot hacks people, but she hacks time. Yeah, I think that uh, White Rose is definitely being established as a pretty cool character in this scene. They also go to show that um, they, they kind of also have all of their... They, they've got eyes and ears everywhere as well, because um, White Rose is aware of that honeypot server that Tyrell found out earlier in this episode. And they kind of um, are starting to lose faith in F-Society because it was their actions that resulted in this honeypot being installed. And they were about to proceed with the hack, not even knowing that it had uh, been created. So if they were to do that, that could have had some very bad consequences for both um, F-Society and the Dark Army. But because White Rose lets Elliot in on that and tells him about the honeypot, you also have to assume that there's something White Rose wants out of this plot succeeding. Because she gives him the missing key or the missing piece of the puzzle to actually get things rolling. And she gives them like a very specific uh, timeline for how this plan is going to play out. So even though they do seem a bit skeptical of F Society, White Rose informs him that in 50 hours and 23 minutes, Dark Army is going to initiate their side of the hack. And all the while they're talking, I don't really understand why, but um, White Rose is also power drilling the hard drives that Elliot brought by. So I guess he wasn't really there to take the data off them, more like the opposite. I actually, I like that where it's like, I don't know who they're pretending for, that it's a real disk recovery service. I guess, like, were they expecting that Elliot would bring the drives back? Because he would probably get in a lot of shit if he brought back some broken drives. I know, so I was like, that's a bit of a mystery to me, unless I thought, is Sandwich Guy not in on it? And they go through the motion of actually doing their repair because the other employees of the place are somehow not aware of what's going on. But it's a bit mysterious. And the whole thing is a bit mysterious because I don't think we know why Dark Army changed their minds. We just know that they have and that if F, if F Society can meet their timeline, this whole thing is going to go down. So Ellie goes back to work. So now Elliot's back at all safe because he has to remove that honeypot that he just found out about, and he's got a bit of a time constraint. Um, one kind of clever way that he comes up with to do this is by hacking Gideon. He knows that Gideon kind of has ultimate access to all of their servers, being the CEO of the company. But um, Gideon's also really smart. He also has a pretty good sense of security. And he has um, two-factor authentication set up on his phone, meaning that even if Elliot was able to use um, a brute force attack like he so often does to get, to get uh, Gideon's password, he still wouldn't be able to log into his accounts and remove this honeypot. So what he has to do is um, distract Gideon and steal his phone to get that key. Part of the distraction, so this obviously makes it look like a bigger, more coordinated piece, is that in this moment we see released online and publicly, um, I believe it's the third F Society video. Well, I guess it's questionable if the hallucination one actually happens, but I guess it's the third one that's presented to us. That's a good point, actually. So I've been counting all of them as F Society videos. So, but this one is, um, it's public, it's on the AllSafe website, and it specifically names both AllSafe and Gideon in the video. Yeah, which is a big deal because so far they haven't really been, they haven't had their sights on AllSafe as much as other companies and the financial institutions as a whole. And I think that may be very strategic because Gideon needs to be distracted at this moment. <laughs> and what distracts you, like hearing your name on TV? Um, and then also hearing that um, the, the main point of this video is that corporations like Allsafe who serve tyrants have no place in the New World Order. Yeah, so 
So the distraction does work, and uh, Elliot is able to steal the phone, get into the server, and turn off the honeypot. But he's not able to do it without any consequences because Gideon is kind of starting to catch on to him. Like I've been saying, Gideon is really smart. He kind of is aware of everything that's going on around him. This is the first time, though, because Gideon's also very good at playing his cards close to his chest, where he kind of blows up at Elliot, and he lets him know that he thinks there's a connection between him and all of the stuff that's been going on. What's interesting about the confrontation scene is Gideon comes over to confront him right as we're wondering whether or not Elliot's actually gotten through to the phone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because um, he kind of uh, minimizes the window, right, when Gideon's about to see over his shoulder. It's very, very anxiety-inducing, that's for sure. But you find out afterward that he was successful. Yeah, there's no boss panic button on, on this particular <laughs> hack. Um, but it works. And so, as far as we know, that's the last piece of information that they needed to pull off their end of the hack. So, tension is really building in this episode. We have only a couple more scenes that Elliot is in. But one, it's him and Darlene, and they're talking. It's night now. They're talking on a park bench, and so he asks her about the climate control hack. She says it's been handled, which is very scandal to say, you know, <laughs> she handled it. Um, so what we know now, so some time has passed. So in 43 hours, E Corp will be destroyed. They did it, right? Wow. This should be this should be an incredible moment. <laughs> this should be like everything they have worked for. It's going to happen. These are the last 43 hours of the world as we know it. So there's also a very cool moment of closeness between them because Darlene says to Elliot, you know, like, you did it. You did it. It worked, right? But Elliot says, no, we did it. Which is the exact flip of, if we think way back to, I think, maybe the first Tyrell and Joanna scene, where the way they think about their collective identity is that Tyrell says, everything I do is for us. Us is me. Everything... In a way, they collapse their identity into his identity. Wow. But I think, well, as you can see, F society is more collectivized, less hierarchical. And so even though Elliot's been a major player, when Darlene tries to give him credit, he says, no, no, this is our credit. That right? really is an interesting parallel, isn't it? It's interesting to see the counterpoint, right? <laughs> because, you know, even though it's, I mean, Tyrell is clearly like a villain in the story, right? And so his way of thinking is also kind of, uh, emblematic of the way I think in a corporation you're supposed to think or oh, yeah. something like that, right? That everyone follows a leader. I can see it that way. Where F society is obviously kind of throwing out that model of doing things. So this is a very cool moment and then it shifts really dramatically. <laughs> no kidding, because I guess um, members of F society now, they've kind of pulled off this plan in the perfect way. They all feel kind of sense of unity and especially um, Elliot and Zarlene who have become very close over the course of this season. Um, Elliot goes in for a kiss, and Darlene doesn't really react the way that he expected. So Darlene doesn't react the way Elliot thought she was going to, because we learned something shocking. Yeah, no kidding. So we learned that Elliot has forgotten. We should stop here and clarify that it, is, it has been eight episodes where we've been under one impression, and now we're finding out something else. That's exactly why it's so shocking, because I remember I texted you in all caps when I watched <laughs> this episode the first time. I remember that. I was waiting for when that would happen, because I knew you would do it. Because what I text is, Darlene's his fucking sister, <laughs> yeah. and then 62 exclamation points, which yeah. is all of my allocation of exclamation points for <laughs> all of 2016. So I guess maybe this is a good time for us to share something with uh, our listeners. Yeah, because we've got a bit of a secret for you guys ourselves, actually. 
And that's that Erin uh, here is my sister. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been eight episodes of this podcast. Uh, actually, we are brother and sister. That's true. So in the show, Elliot starts cycling through all of these childhood memories, which he now realizes include Darlene. <laughs> and I think, I mean, maybe if we were going to cycle through our childhood memory reel, we would probably have some things to say. Do you have anything off the top of your head? Yeah, so off the top of my head. I'm when, so afraid of what this is going to be. <laughs> I know, I'm afraid you're going to hate what I say. <laughs> well, listeners, uh, when Devlin was eight or nine, maybe, he had an assignment to paint a self-portrait. Oh, I know where this is going. And the way he depicted himself was as a sad astronaut floating alone in space. <laughs> With a single tear from the eye. I think we should post that picture on our site. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, so, what else do we have from the childhood <laughs> highlight reel here? Yeah, well, I guess I don't have as many memories, because maybe you can't tell, but Erin is actually 10 years older than me, so I don't have as many memories of her as she does of me. One thing I really remember, though, is when I was um, a really young kid, even younger than eight, I was kind of doing a bunch of uh, baking, like a hobby that still exists today, because it's really like the kind of tastiest science, in my opinion. But... Um, <laughs> I, I would make muffins out of grape juice and curly fries and all kinds of other nasty <laughs> stuff and then make you guys eat it. It was all very nice of you. Um, but I remember once I tried to make muffins. I think that I had just put oil and salt and pepper in a muffin pan and then put it in the, the oven. Came back 30 minutes later and they were the tastiest muffins that you've ever had. And I only found out when I was 14 that you guys had actually replaced it with real muffins. And we it was did. just like the illusion that came crashing down. <laughs> I feel like we never wanted you to know. It was funny because I was retelling the story and it just like clicked in my mind at that exact moment. You used to call them potions. I do remember that, yeah. Do you remember your little cat, Pal? Oh, I do. Because I loved that show Arthur, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize that his dog was named Pal. I thought it was Cat. So it didn't really make sense to name my cat Pal, but I did love my cat. You have another story about a thing that looked like a cat but wasn't a cat. <laughs> oh, yeah. I almost forgot about that. When you um, helped us make a Pikachu jack-o'-lanterns that everybody had mistaken for a cat. You were all very nice about it, though. Nobody said anything until years <laughs> later. <laughs> it looks pretty good, if I got to say. It's a pretty good cat, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> so we offer this because we thought, oh, this is going to seem kind of gimmicky and maybe un untrue uh, to our listeners. Yeah, but the truth is, when we got the idea to have a stand-up comedian and a hacker who are brother and sister watch Mr. Robot together, we were just like... Why haven't we thought of this before? It's too perfect. We should have thought of it two seasons ago, really. <laughs> right, so back to Elliot's story, though. He's a little bit in shock, as you guys might be, too. And they're demonstrating this by busting out that handheld camera again and just spiraling around him in a very chaotic fashion. He eventually gets home, and he, um, he, he's kind of trying to learn more about the situation. Clearly, he's forgotten some major life events, and he's wondering what else he's forgotten about. He tries to find some information about himself on the Internet, and there's kind of... Um, alarmingly little information about himself available. Kind of like when he hacked uh, Michael Hansen earlier, didn't find out anything about him because he was using a fake identity. He wonders if um, maybe Elliot is kind of doing something like that as well. So he pulls out that binder full of people where he keeps the um, steganographic data archives of people who he's hacked in the past. And there's one blank CD in there. Do you know what was on that? Yeah, and so... Just back to what you were saying, because we, Elliot's presented to us initially as kind of an unreliable narrator in the story. 
what's really scary for him here is that he's become unreliable even to himself. He can't trust what he thinks or knows anymore. So in and this next scene, which is very BD. <laughs> yeah. This is a very BD. That's how I should properly say it, right? Yes. This well, is... this whole episode is very BD, to be clear. <laughs> so this next scene. So when he, op- when he pulls up the information that's on that blank CD, there's uh, images of him as a child and a man who's presumably his father. Yeah. But who's that man? <laughs> it's the, the person who knocks on the door in a minute, isn't it? It is. And it's Mr. Robot. Yeah. Mr. Robot is his dead father. <laughs> I mean, it, it's pretty mind-blowing. It's kind of hard to follow up with the previous one, though. It's a, What's <laughs> funny, the Darlene one shocked me more. Me too. Like, I, I think that maybe if they spaced this one out to the next episode, it would have been a little bit more shocking. But it's not to take away from this, of course. No, no, no. And so, um, here, I'm going to draw a parallel that I see, which you can tell me if it's hacky or not. But, I like when you use that word. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, earlier, I was advancing the idea that the that Tyrell Wellick is a Macbeth kind of figure. Mm-hmm. And I know it's, it's been advanced by other people, we didn't want to spoil it for you before, that Elliot is really a Hamlet-like figure. So he has, he's haunted by his father's ghost, and he goes, his mission becomes to avenge his death. Wow. Which ties that into... That is exactly the same, isn't it? It is. It ties into Sludgegate. <laughs> um, yeah, Sludgegate. But the one thing that the two characters have in common is that they both set out to kill the king. Wow. So I think I'm going to have more to say about that later. I think so too. But I want to leave that theory there because at this point I see that parallel so strongly. Um, this whole episode is just so shocking. Like I've never seen a plot twist I think that impacted me quite so much as a viewer. So now after that plot twist, I think it'd be a good idea to kind of go back and look at some earlier moments and earlier episodes and see if there are any interactions between Mr. Robot and Elliot or Mr. Robot and Darlene that kind of take on a different uh, meaning now. Yeah, because in reviewing it, I now see things quite differently than what I assumed them to Absolutely. be. Absolutely. I, I mean, there's so many of these, but just off the top of my head, a few that I can mention. Um, in the very first episode, uh, Mr. Robot is smoking a joint in the subway, and then when he meets Mr. Robot for the first time, he calls him out because he's smoking, and that's not okay, even though he'd been doing that earlier. Um, when he meets uh, Darlene on the subway, and he's kind of not really sure if she's sane or not at that moment, uh, he asks how she knows where he lives, and obviously it's his sister. Of course, she would know where he lives. Yeah. So, uh, you're like you're saying when you watch it again, all of these things are just so obvious, but it completely hits you out of the blue when you're watching it the first time. Absolutely. I wish I could watch it again for the first time. Thanks a lot for listening to Mr. Rewatch. This episode was recorded in downtown Toronto. If you liked our episode today, we would encourage you to consider contributing to Ladies Learning Code. We picked this in honor of Darlene because she's badass. <laughs> uh, they help women and youth develop digital literacy skills, and uh, we think they're a great group. So ladieslearningcode.com. I'm Devlin. And I'm Aaron. Bonsoir. <laughs>